0: And go. (laughs) All right, so we're recording. Uh Uh-oh. Welcome, everybody. This is my first time to Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Actually, that's not true. I came here many years ago when things did not look like this, and I, I just came and visited, and I can't even remember why. But I was here many years ago, and I saw... I think uh, at the time, I think I also saw Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, who some of you may know, and I just had a wonderful time seeing them this afternoon, kind of on the spur of the moment, which was great. And uh, they contacted me, and I kind of didn't even realize. I thought, oh, right, of course, they're here. But they they thought of it, thank goodness. And then also, some of you are familiar with Bhante Bhikkhu Analeo, who also resides here. It was in sort of long-term retreat here. And I had some wonderful time with him also, just before dinner. I was a little late for dinner as a result, but it was wonderful. So I feel already like it's been a great, you know, I'm ready to stop. We can all just be quiet and meditate the rest of the time, and that'll be it. But maybe we should explore a little of the Buddha Dharma, the Dharma of the Buddha, and especially the Buddha Darshana or Bauddha Darshana in Sanskrit, Buddhist philosophy. So that's what we're going to be specializing in these few days. We're going to try to do a deep plunge, to the extent possible, into certain themes that kind of run from the very earliest days, you might say, until something that emerges as Mahamudra, the great seal, a non-dual tradition, that together with Dzogchen, another non-dual tradition in Tibet, which means Mahamudra means the great seal, Dzogchen in Tibetan means the great perfection, and the style of practice that I'm actually personally very much involved in is a combination of these two. I'll say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But that's where we're, we're sort of going to be headed, toward how, does, how do we arrive at a kind of understanding of non-dual awareness, and why is that so, why does it make sense in a certain way, and how do we see it as continuous, not discontinuous, but continuous with other aspects of Buddhism uh, that start quite early, and that was actually a big part of my conversation both with Joseph, uh, the you know who many of you have heard of the book one dharma maybe have you heard of one dharma yes so that's a really great book and D- joseph calls himself a one dharmist and then you know in the middle of my conversation with him today he said you're a one dharmist too and i went yeah i guess i am yes and, and indeed i am and so is Bhikkhu analo so this is like a radical buddhist community here one dharma it's actually, it actually turns out to be not so radical because really, what it echoes is something that even we find in the Tibetan tradition, which is the notion that uh, in the, the great uh, teacher, the founder of one of the main uh, traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, Jay Tsongkhapa, uh, the founder of the Gelugpa tradition, uh, in the 15th century or so, he said uh, that the way to encounter this kind of incredible variety of teachings, and and the Tibetans were in a similar situation to us, I think, which is that they inherited a whole lot of teachings from the Indian context, they crossed over the Himalayas in various waves, and they had to make kind of sense of all these things, some of them seemed contradictory, they didn't seem like, how how does it all work together, and, you know, what do we do? And one attitude that, that Jai Tsongkhapa invited us all to have is this attitude of, in Tibetan he would say, Chirtamchi Dangar Sharwa, which means seeing all the teachings, all the teachings dawn or appear to you as personal instructions. In other words, all the different varieties of the Dharma are there for really only one purpose, which is to bring everyone out of suffering and perhaps even more so everyone to awakening, to Buddhahood. And that's kind of the core of this idea that, of, of the sort of one dharma idea, which also can be called the ekayana, the one vehicle. Not, the one, not two vehicles, not three vehicles, we'll talk about that later, but the one vehicle. We're all you know, on the same bus, so to speak. Heading toward Awakening. So that idea is going to be very important for us because we are going to look at certain types of attitudes, philosophical positions, theories, that are then going to be critiqued. And in the process of that critique, we're going to say that we're going to see how historically, we're going to do this actually historically, how... Buddhist positions sort of develop over time and lead to a certain perspective that uh, then becomes these kind of non-dual styles. But we're not going to say that as the, in that process of critique that that means that you know, the, the schools or the positions or the theories that are, are critiqued are somehow in a sense inferior I know that sound, might sound odd, but one way of thinking about this actually is, is to really ask, well, first of all, maybe before I do say anything else, let me step back and, and uh, ask a couple of things of all of you. So, how many of you have in, uh, practiced uh, meditation, like mindfulness meditation? How many of you, if you show of hands... You're all Gomchen, great meditators. All right. And then, how many of you have, like, either formally or informally studied Buddhist philosophy to some extent? Ooh, okay. We're also all great Mahapanditas. You are the paradigm of practitioner, what's called in Tibetan the K-drup, the scholar practitioner, right? So, uh, it's good to hear it. I'm I'm delighted. We'll see uh, we'll see how things progress. Just about everyone has both. I think everyone has practiced meditation, and many of you have already studied some Buddhist philosophy. So that means that you know what the word for philosophy is. Anyone want to tell me? So this is part of. Uh, by the way, what we're going to do is we are going to have a little back and forth. Uh, and we're even going to debate. Part of the purpose of this is not to win, or to be the better debater, but it is partially. It is in a sense just like the critique. The point of the critique is not to say that's bad, but is to see what it. Where am I hung up? Where where where, where am I in some sense? Uh, blocked, maybe? What am I not understanding? What is my particular, particular version of ignorance, a term, a vidya in Sanskrit, that will be very important for us? And we just dis- can discover that through that dialogue. And so we're going we're to do that. I'm going to ask you questions. There's going to be debate. I may debate with you. You will debate with me. If we start to feel like, oh, my position is, you know, once one of the things that can happen in debate is we actually are a little attached to our position and then, you know, it can feel uncomfortable when that position starts to get critiqued. Uh, my mother had uh, in, uh, you know, uh, in her kitchen, she had this great jar. She had this very nicely done kitchen and, you know, she had these jars and one of the jars was cherished Illusions. <laughs> and you opened it up, it was empty, but, you know, but uh, uh, the, that's ideal, right, isn't it? But, you know, so, like, they, you know, when our cherished illusion, when someone starts to go routing around in that jar, right, it's like, well, what's this? You know, we can feel uncomfortable, so, so the invitation is for us to be okay with that, to be respectful about that, and actually really to take what I would call the attitude of the bodhisattva. So as you can already tell, the style that we're talking about here is really primarily what's called Mahayana Buddhism. That is my home base. I'll say a little bit more about that. But the key aspect of the bodhisattva... The Bodhisattva practice, the practice of the awakening being, Bodhisattva, awakening Bodhisattva being, is someone who is intent upon attaining awakening so as to, to somehow serve others in a way that will enable them to also awaken. Through teaching, through whatever it might be. So the focus is on the relief of others' suffering. And that attitude, the bodhisattva attitude then, is based upon the fundamental kind of ethics. That is the ethics of non-harm. So that's the ethics that makes you a Buddhist, actually, in a way. When the technical sort of way we enter into formal Buddhist practice is we engage in refuge. The, the tisarana in Pali, or tisadana in in Sanskrit, right? I go for refuge in the Buddha, the dharma and the sangha. We'll say more about that later. And then, when you do that, you're meant to take at least one of the five uh, vows that are the lay vows. And but all of them are all of the Buddhist vows at that level are rooted in non-harm, ahimsa. Right. But then the bodhisattva vows, in a sense, are sort of building on that, building on non-harm. Then. The bodhisattva vows are oriented also toward, very interesting, it's an attempt to shift our orientation from self focus to other focus. From self cherishing or rang chedzen in Tibetan to shen chedzen, cherishing others. And in the, in the context of the bodhisattva vow, they're like the 18 root downfalls. Maybe we'll talk about them at another time. I'm not sure we'll have occasion to. But a sort of key aspect of the bodhisattva vows is that we are seeking to be helpful, and we are seeking also not just to be unharmful, but to be actually helpful. And we are seeking to really, in a sense, see, see things from other people's positions, so that when we're in a debate, even part of it is trying to really understand what someone else is believing. What is their position? What are they understanding? To, do, to engage in this process that we're going to do together of actually going to be very intellectual, very analytical. And uh, that process, at, at points, and that process is a process that is meant to kind of open us up, that is meant to make it possible for us to be better bodhisattvas, to have more compassion. And the container, the kind of ethical container for that is going to be, for us, I'd like to recommend this idea of being the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva vow. We'll say more about that a little later. And so what's the purpose of this again? Well, there's a, one thing you can always say when I teach at the university and uh, I am a professor, I, ha- I have the, uh, the honor, I suppose, of holding a, an endowed chair at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I replaced a a Tibetan man who taught there for 30-some years, years, Geshe Lhundrup Sopa, when he retired. And I teach courses, academic courses on Buddhism. Uh, and uh, when I, sit, I give you know, students hints about, well, there's always one thing you can say, like, what are we doing this for? What can you always say in the Buddhist context? Why are you doing this? To relieve suffering, yes, compassion, kind of, but it could be your own suffering, so which may or may not count as compassion—that's another debate. But uh, yes, you can always say it's about relieving suffering, right? And how do we relieve suffering? Do away with we do away with anger. It's very good. Does that make sense to everyone? Right. So the root cause of suffering is ignorance, avidya in Sanskrit. We're going to find out there's different varieties of it. All right, and how do you remove ignorance? The Eightfold Path. Kind of. An interesting thing, as a side comment, in the Tibetan Buddhism, almost doesn't talk much about the Eightfold Path, interestingly. The contents are there, but they don't really use that, they actually don't use that schema very often. Interestingly, and I know Barry's much more focused on the sort of Theravada tradition. will be be—I'm going to be the odd duck here, talking more from Indo-Tibetan Mahayana tradition. To work with delusions. Yes. So, how do you eliminate ignorance? Well, clear seeing. Mindful clear seeing is good. Mindful. Samprajanya. mindfulness will help, but mindfulness will not in itself eliminate ignorance. Who say wisdom? Yes. Pradna in Sanskrit. Wisdom. Ignorance is seeing things falsely. Wisdom is seeing the way things truly are. Yatā Bhuta darshana. seeing things, darsh- seeing darshana as it truly is. Yatā Bhuta. So that eliminates the error. And we'll come back to this tomorrow. So what's philosophy then? And what's the word for philosophy? Does anyone want to venture a guess? I just used it. The standard word for philosophy actually throughout the Indian traditions, which is interesting, not just Buddhism, the Sanskrit term is darshana, seeing. And your philosophical position Can be described as a drishti, a view. And there's something that's actually really important about that metaphor. As it turns out, humans, for us humans, seeing, sight is an extremely important sense. Even people who are blind from birth will use visual metaphors, actually, because our cultures are our cultures so our human cultures are so saturated by vision as a sense. And so seeing vision is a a fundamental metaphor for experience. So So what is Buddhist philosophy for? Well, it's for relieving suffering, but it's for leading us to a particular kind of experience. In one way, we're going to get to a certain point where we're going to discover a sort of position that says, if, my philosophy is about the philosophy itself. Then I'm actually stuck. Instead of being something that is helping me, this is something that is hurting me. One of the great, metaf- one of the great metaphors for this that we find in the Pali suttas as well, I think it's in the Alagada Upama sutta, I'm not a I'm I'm by by no means an expert either on the Pali Canon or on Theravada Buddhism per se but I dabble it is this metaphor of the of the snake the poisonous snake so philosophy which is what we're going to be doing is a poisonous snake if you grab the snake wrong it will if you grab it by its tail it'll turn around and bite you if you, grab the, if you grab the snake by the head, you can carefully milk the venom out of it and use that to actually as a medicine. So, darshana, drishti, our, our theories, our views, our philosophical beliefs are actually, in a sense, something that is dangerous. Right? We'll see more about why that might be the case, and maybe you don't agree, and you'll be able to convince us all that we should take another view. But there's sort of a certain endpoint of this view in the Mahayana context is going to be the position that the great philosopher Nagarjuna articulates, which is the idea that the endpoint of Buddhist philosophy is Sarvadrishti Prahanam the abandonment of all views that if i am clinging to a view clinging to a set of beliefs that that in itself is actually going to be my greatest source of suffering anyway i'm sort of you know i'm i'm jumping ahead a little far into some things that it's going to take us at least a little while to really get into over the next few days. So let me say a little about the structure of the course, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to meet each other for a minute or two. So first of all, we have a schedule. Everyone got their schedule, right? And we're going to be uh, uh, meditating in here for just 30 minutes in the morning, and I will be guiding meditation. And I should say that I will introduce you to a style of practice that is already a non-dual style, right? So a Tibetan style of practice uh, that comes out of the lineage I'm, I'm associated with. And again, I'll describe that soon. And uh, so we'll be doing that during our meditation sessions for the most part. We may do a few other things as well. And then in our morning, the, in the classroom, we're going to have... I'm going to, you know, sort of lecture, but we're also trying to have conversation opportunities uh, for questions, for debate, for speaking with each other, and then uh, we'll have a break, and after that we'll come in here, and then we're going to do some processing, some question and answer, a little bit of practice, sort of back and forth between conversation and practice, some opportunity maybe for you to, each other, kind of talk about what's coming up for you, what are your questions, what are your critiques. And then uh, we'll do the same, we'll have lunch, we'll do the same thing in the afternoon. And then our evening session right now is scheduled for two full hours. We may not go the two full hours. What we may do is actually allow us to have about maybe an hour to 90 minutes, depending on how the energy is. And then we'll have a break, and then people who want to do an extra half hour at the end of practice can do that. So that's, that's tentatively what I'm thinking. But we'll see how the, how the energy is going. So any questions about that so far, schedule-wise? Now, in terms of how I'd like to, uh, because this, you know, we're engaged with philosophical work, I think it's important for us to be able to speak with each other. But I'd like to, first of all, suggest that we hold what some people call noble silence, uh, in, uh, uh, from after the evening session until the end of breakfast, right? So we have basically kind of, and what, all, I mean, there's a, there are different versions of noble science, a very, somebody who's done retreats here at Barry before, Okay, so you're all experts, many of you anyway, in what noble silence means. There's a strong version of noble silence. The strongest version of noble silence is you really don't... Not only do you not look at people, you don't really look at anything. So you maintain silence, but you also maintain a certain kind of bearing where you always keep your eyes downward, cast downward. So that's a very strict version. Somewhat less strict version is you don't have to keep your eyes cast downward. When you're moving around, but you don't look, pe- don't look at people. And if you if you want to do that, you can just do that, and people will be able to figure out that you're doing that, <laughs> right? Uh, let's just say that silence is not a big Tibetan thing. To be perfectly frank, uh, I remember the first time I went to see an initiation with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Kala Chakra, the Wheel of Time initiation in 1991. And His Holiness, uh, you know, was, I don't know, giving some kind of a talk. And the people who were like the first, there were 200,000 people there. And uh, the first like maybe 10,000 were paying attention. And then the further back you got in the uh, area... You know, this big area where they all were is like some people talking. Then by the back, it's like people are making tea and they're, you know kids are running around. And, and then when the monks come to serve tea to everybody, which they do, that's like a riot show where they're banging the pots and saying, get out of the way. You know, and they're running with the tea. So it's like, you know, a different style. So it's very different style. Uh, but we're not going to go there. But I do. you do not have to feel like you have to do very strict, noble silence. But let's be silent from after dinner until after breakfast. And uh, part of that silence I'd like to recommend include, if you wish, your devices. So I've got my little clock here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I th- think it's, this is a chance to, uh, you know, turn it off and unplug, so if you, you know, maybe especially in the evening, but really throughout the course, it might be smart to uh, turn it off. I could see where if you have a device that you can easily use to maybe look some things up and you have curiosity, I could see where that would make sense, but you know, that would then be a very specific way of using the device. It's not like, oh, wait a second, what was Nagarjuna's main text? Oh, look, there's Candy Crush, you know, and it's like, no. Like, uh, right? So I think maybe we just try to use the devices mindfully if you're going to use them. And if you're open to just turning it off, turn it off. Uh, So I leave that up to you. And then when we're not in, in silence, full silence, then I'd like to ask that we speak mindfully with each other, that we maintain mindful speech. So, to my mind, there are many different ways of thinking about mindful speech. There many different ways of thinking about what mindfulness is, and we, we will get into some of that over these coming days. Uh, but, you know, one way of thinking about what mindfulness means is that it is uh, that we're acting with awareness, that we're not on autopilot, that we're not... Um, that we're noticing not just what we're doing but how we're doing it to use a, a you know a technical term we have lots of meta awareness in our actions and thoughts which is the the redefinition of sampajanna, or samprajanya in sanskrit clear comprehension turns into meta awareness later on which we'll talk about later So this capacity to kind of just notice how we are speaking. And so how would that be? Well, if we're going to be inspired by the Bodhisattva practice and the way we speak is we try to speak beneficially. We speak meaningfully. We certainly don't speak in a way that is divisive. Uh, We don't do idle gossip. We don't speak harshly. So we try to avoid harsh speech. Pointless speech, gossiping, and divisive speech. Right? Which is the four out of the ten non-virtuous actions. The four non-virtuous actions of speech are those. So if we are... I just want to recommend that we do that. And so if you don't feel like speaking, don't, you don't have to speak. But if you have something you know, useful to say to somebody, then say it. You can also just greet each other. Right? You don't have to, you know, it's not like you, you, you can't greet each other. And you can even have a pleasant conversation about, you know, the sunrise or what have you. But mostly let's avoid what is called phatic communication in semiotics, which means, it just means the channel is open. Like, hey, how are you? It's like, I don't care how you are. I'm just saying like, you know, I'm talking to you and you're understanding me, right? So we don't probably need a lot of that if we can avoid it. But you do have an opportunity, if you want, to explore with each other uh, what we're talking about, questions that are coming up, ideas, and how they relate to experience, especially. Okay, So that's what I'd like to suggest. And part of that mindful speech, especially thinking of one of the most influential texts for the Bodhisattva practice, which is by Shantideva, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, the Bodhicaryavatara. Has anyone heard of that text? A few people have heard of that text. So he has this wonderful... Well, I remember my first teacher, whom I met actually in Amherst when I was there, student there with Bob, Bob Thurman. Um, uh, he actually illustrated this big, tall man from Eastern Tibet, sort of illustrated this one. So he's like, this is, you know he was trying to explain and my Tibetan was very poor so I couldn't figure out what he was saying in Tibetan so he actually started to act it out which is, you know, if you're going to be mindful in this way when you're speaking and moving and so on, you want to be like a thief. So he was trying to be like this big guy trying to be a thief or be a cat and then he was trying to be I'd never, it was hilarious but anyway, you had to be there. Uh, uh, So, Part of what this means is let's not, maybe if we have a habit of speaking loudly, tone it down, right? Uh, no need to interrupt. Uh, and, and, and let's even observe that not just with our speech, with, with our bodies too. So, you know, if the door is slamming, just make sure it doesn't slam. So we can create an, an environment that is an environment that's conducive for our what we're what we're trying to practice here, and philosophy is a kind of practice, as I already said, it's about experience, it's about seeing. We can try to create a kind of container together that doesn't have to, all of us don't have to be silent, but we can be mindful. So I hope everyone's okay with that, clear about that. Oh, great. Okay, great. So any questions so far about course, the schedule, anything? Yes? Can you tell me your name? Amy. Amy. What small, talk, Amy? small talk, I think, is, uh, it can be, I think it can be fine if you're like small talk in the sense that you're just trying to like say, hey, hi there, and I'm me and you're you. And from your perspective, you're me and I'm you, or something like that. But I mean, you know, like, uh, when you're just trying, to, that's, that's phatic, P-H-A-T-I-C, this kind of, like, channels are open, and if you need that, that's good. But otherwise, I would not suggest, like, just hanging out and chatting about, I don't know, the latest recipe. But if you want to do that, I, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. As long as we maintain that sense of trying to be beneficial and not harmful. But I'm I'm suggesting that we might want to try to take that opportunity and make it even more meaningful than usual. So if we're doing small talk, maybe we can find a way of moving our small talk into something that is even more meaningful and actually about what we're doing. Okay, it's actually in some ways harder than noble silence because noble silence in some ways is quite easy because you just don't talk. and You don't look at anybody. And some people really like that too, by the way. And you know, sometimes it is sort of refreshing. But this is more challenging. And that's also, you'll see how it makes sense with the style of philosophy that we're sort of headed towards as well. And later. Okay, any other questions? All right, then I'd like to just invite you, if you all don't mind, to maybe turn to a neighbor or two, and just briefly, like, share your name, and maybe something about why you're here, and perhaps even what kinds of things you're hoping to explore. Something like that. Just for a few minutes now. All right, shall we turn and do that?
1: Hey.
0: Alrighty. some mindful speech going on there, I'm sure. So any shout outs? Any, uh, anyone want to share about what you heard or what you'd said, about why you're here, or some small talk or Yes. That's probably true, I would think, especially here at Barry, but in other places too. That, does that that resonate with people? Yes. Yeah. How do we feel about that? Excited. Excited? Anyone apprehensive or re- imi- intimidated? Yeah. We're both at the same time. Both at the We're same excited. time, intimidated. Anyone ready to leave? Maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't say out here. You, you can just go. Right there, you go. Yes. Could I be for a little more meditation time? Yes, we could. We will definitely have a meditation time. We'll even do some in class too. But one of the things about so uh, let me I'm, we'll come back to that. I'm going to remember that meditation time. Other other comments, things that you'd like to hear or see or do or. Hopes and dreams, fears, with few with, just to find that's great yes so it is a big part of this is definitely the community that you all even in a few days can form together in this exploration. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it will get too heady. I can tell you that. Uh, my friend uh, Roshi Joan Halifax, and also a kind of teacher for me, too. And I do a lot of teaching with her at Upaya Zen Center. And she likes to say that my teaching style is, can be described as fire hose. So get Ready. Yes, so it will, it will get to the uh, eye. You'll say, turn it off, turn it off. No. But that's okay, and it's good. It's good to say that. Yes. I, I guess our I hope is, even as we get into the more sophisticated philosophical aspects, that we can always, you know, bring that down to, you know, what does this mean for us in our practice? Exactly, exactly. Yes. So. Yes, definitely. That is the idea. It's meant to be an experiential exploration as much as, or even more than a kind of, I don't know, intellectual one. Yes? Yes. A balance, I think. Yes. Yeah. So, and I was I was encouraged. Who's who has never done a BCBS course before? Okay. So when I talked to my friend William Edelglass here, who's the director or something like that, um, yeah, he the program, director. the program director William was kind of emphasized the idea that we should do a lot of classroom time. And it didn't sound like he does very much meditation in his stuff, but I'm probably going to do more than what he said, and hopefully enough for you. But we, there is a way in which, you know, we can meditate whenever, wherever, but we can't do this kind of thing with the, where we can both meditate and kind of explore together. That's a little rarer, so it's a, Finding, both see if the balance, it may be off for you or not, and feel free to tell me. I noticed too, as I thought about that same thing earlier today, that we do have an hour after each meal, that's just hours. And so if somebody feels like we need more time on the cushion, you know, the hall will probably be very quiet. And, yes. Know, so there is time for us each day. And usually tonight is different, but an evening session is going to be pretty much all practice. Pretty much. I mean, we will do some Q&A in the evenings and we'll see. And if it really, if there's a lot of energy for that, we'll do more. But there'll also be time for practice. And I'm going to say something about this soon. But let's see if there are other... Anyone else? Yes? It's more about the content of the, of the course. And this Shia is to talk, he can only about Buddhism if all the papers talk about a philosophy, is Buddhism a philosophy or Buddhism is a religion? And after all, not all religion is a psychology. And then that said it was different that the monologues got to say that the, the Buddhism is a religion. But I... if it is a philosophy, when is it likely to be a philosophy? So. Yeah, those are really good. Those are good questions. So, uh, and I'm going to hold that question for one second and see if there's any others. Then I'll come back to it. Any others before or comments, shout outs, hopes, dreams? Yes? No, I think just the one you said something about um, practicing and feeling stuck. Yes. And Okay, and that's that's very interesting to hear, and that actually reminds me of something I wanted to ask, which is so how many of you have practiced Mamudra or Dzogchen? Little bit? Little bit. Any uh, Zen? Little bit? It's kind of a contradiction you say I practice Zen, I'm supposed to hit you with a stick, but never mind. Or cut your thumb off. What is Zen? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, in case you know that koan, but maybe you don't. Um, Okay. Uh, Yes. Okay, good. So then, probably for a number of us, there's going to be a different technique. Yes, (laughs) we're going to be very, yes, terrible. Yeah, we're going to be doing something different. We're going to be doing something different. So, and we'll do a little of it tonight. Yes? Yeah. The, more of the things. Okay. I'm kind of really looking forward to it. Okay. Dying well, this of it. that is what we're going to do <laughs> very yes. soon. I just would reiterate that, and also that I did come here for the academic piece, hmm. you know, in addition to the practice piece that I've been doing. Okay. Yep. All right, so let me say. So, this I've saved that question because this then brings to the sort of who maybe I'm going to say a little bit about who I am, and that's going to relate to your question. I'm going to try to learn your names, and I forgot to ask you to say your names as you said stuff. So, but you know, I am very good with faces and terrible with names, so you'll have to excuse me for that. Uh, all right, so I, th- I think it's appropriate for me to tell you a little bit about myself. I started studying Buddhism in 1982, I think, 81, 82, and actually the, my first, when I was uh, two years old, no, I'm, uh, when I went to Amherst College after leaving the United States Air Force Academy, where I had been for two years because I wanted to be an astronaut, as it turns out, it was so hypocritical that I would have been a pretty nasty person as an astronaut if I managed to stay. At least that's how it felt. So not that would have happened to everyone there, but that certainly wasn't doing good things to me. So I punched out, as they say. I ejected uh, before the end of my second year. Otherwise, you have to become an enlisted man if you don't graduate So for five years. So I left and I, went. I ended up, through various circumstances at Amherst College, and a friend of mine saw me in quite a lot of distress because I actually really was experiencing an incredible sort of identity crisis. You know, I had all of this thing about being an astronaut and getting off the planet. It's sort of like a transcend, a dream of transcendence in a way. Right. You know, get me out of here. Uh, and that all fell apart, and I really didn't know who I was. And a friend across the hall in my dorm said, hey, here, try, this, try doing this. And he taught me basic vipassana. He had taken a, uh, a course here, I know. Th- maybe it was Goenka. Anyway, taken a vipassana course, and then also taught me so basic vip- uh, mindfulness-style meditation or vipassana, insight meditation, and metta, uh, in both of which I found extremely helpful. And then I said, oh, I need, to study, I need to study this stuff. So then I took a course with Bob Thurman, and what I remember of that course is uh, pretty much every class, after about five minutes, the, it just became a debate between me and Bob about whether I existed or not. <laughs> and as if you, those of you that know Bob can easily imagine this. And uh, I'm not sure how the other students felt about it, but uh, since it was like almost every class. But uh, he seemed to get a kick out of it, and I certainly... That really drew me in. And then, the following semester, he invited Tharathuku Rinpoche, who actually visited IMS at the time when when he came. And he was the abbot of Gyutu Monastery, Upper Tantric College. Very prominent uh, Tibetan Lama in the Galukpa tradition, which very much emphasizes philosophy. And uh, he was a visiting professor, even though he didn't speak a word of English. And Bob would translate for him. But he also taught in the evenings at, at Bob had the American Institute of Buddhist Studies, still has it, and he had a small kind of place where teachings happened. So I got really hooked back then. And I studied, studied, and eventually went to graduate school at Harvard because I kind of figured, well, I want to keep doing this stuff, and but my parents are kind of nervous, uh, so and I do need to make a living, and I don't think I'm too suited to be a monk, maybe, but, you know, there was some discouragement, and... So I decided, okay, well, instead, I'm going to uh, go to graduate school. So I ended up at graduate school at Harvard somehow. And I had, my story of my academic career, if you really want to know, is really quite strange. So sometime I'll tell you more about it if you really want to know, but maybe not during the course. And uh, I uh, eventually got some grants to go on field work to India. And I taught at the Antioch uh, Buddhist Studies Program in Bodh Gaya. And there I met uh, Chirky Nimba just after my first Lama, Tara Rybache, had passed away. Now, along this time, I'd had both academic and Buddhist, uh, kind of in some ways fairly traditional Buddhist education and Buddhist philosophy and in and, and, uh, Tibetan style practice, including tantric practice. And then, but, but then, I, when I met, uh, my, my uh, daughter Rinpoche passed away, and then in, in 91, and then in 94, I met Chukinyaman Rinpoche, who is the oldest son of someone you may have heard of, called Tuku Urgen Rinpoche, uh, who, for example, uh, Joseph and Sharon, and actually Biko and Alio also were, had received teachings from and became quite close to. And uh, the, uh, so this is the tradition that's called a combination of Mahamudra, which in Tibetan is called Chakchen, Great Seal, and Zokchen, Great Perfection. So, the, in Tibetan, you can make a compound out of this, Chak Zok, which means Chak Dzog is Mahamudra Zokchen practiced together, and that's what this lineage is. And so that became, there was just something that happened that really connected for me after a lot of philosophical study, a tradition that is actually very uh, cautious about philosophy is something that really drew me in. But Trichinimitar Bache is actually a very unusual individual because he's within that tradition where many people are much more cautious about philosophy. He thinks it's very important, especially for Westerners to study philosophy. So he's actually established a school in Kapendu where I'm going after this, uh, after visiting family in Sweden for a few days, uh, called Rongjung Yishi Institute. And it's a very good, actually, undergraduate and MA program that they're, that they're running there. So this combination for me, and then eventually, you know, I, as I said, I, I, I became a professor at, at University of Wisconsin-Madison. I got recruited by Emory University. I was there for 10 years. And then I get, in 2015, I got recruited back by, to take this endowed chair. And as so my original work is actually my PhD was in religious studies. And this raises the question of whether Buddhism is a religion or not. We're going to circle back. But first, I should say that now, after I met... After I was at Wisconsin for the first time, I met this neuroscientist, Richie Davidson. Has anyone heard of Richie Davidson? Oh, okay. Uh, and you know, Richie recruited me into a, uh, working with him uh, before, we, before the Center for Healthy Minds was created. We were working together on uh, the study of long-term meditators. Uh, Mathieu Ricard was also part of this study team. And I was the first drawn in as someone to translate out of Tibetan, because I speak Tibetan. But uh, eventually it was really much more also about kind of conceptual translation, because the kind of work I did for my, my uh, doctoral dissertation at Harvard in the Committee for the Study of Religion was actually very much like cognitive science, as it turns out. And I did have some scientific background priori- previous to that as, as an undergraduate mostly from the Air Force Academy. So the upshot is that I ended up becoming someone who does both Buddhist studies and work with scientists. And, uh, you know, at least half my publications these days or more are actually coming out in scientific journals. So that's going to... So there's sort of three influences for me. Some of it is just Buddhism, very traditional Buddhism, but... An interesting combination of philosophical Buddhism and a kind of style that really is suspicious of philosophy. Both of those together, actually. And then uh, the, and we'll see why there's a suspicion eventually. Uh, And then there is uh, uh, the, you know, just straight up religious studies training as an academic and also Buddhist studies academic training. And then there's the scientific stuff I do. So all of that's going to come out. I can't help it. You know, so it's all going to come out. Uh, I mean, I probably could help it. I could just be, but I don't want to. And uh, so, you know, it's all going to come out. We're going to sometimes talk a little science-y stuff now and then. And you can ask science questions if you want. And I'll try to answer to, my, to the best of my ability. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of it's there's going to be sort of academic stuff, academic ways of thinking, especially history. Like an historical perspective, which the tradition is generally not very historical, but I think we're going to find an historical perspective to be helpful in terms of how we're going to go about things, and then of course my particular kind of home base within uh, um, within Buddhism, which is this chakzok, mahamudra Dzogchen, non-dual style of practice, right, and. Uh, why non-dual awareness is important is something that we will get to. But we're actually going to try to maybe do a little bit even tonight in a minute or two to kind of cultivate that. But there's something important I want to say, uh, which is that in this style of practice. Uh, so you've heard of Shamatha and Vipassana. Who's, heard of, who's not heard of this ever? It's okay, don't be embarrassed. Okay, shamatha and vipassana mean... Shamatha is, or vipassana in, in Pali. So, one way of thinking about... So, we need wisdom to, to, to uproot ignorance. Right? We're going to explore that more tomorrow. In order to do that, however, it's going to it's gonna be experiential. Because ignorance is not just a set of beliefs or things we think... It's actually, in, it's in our behavior, right? It is, it ha, it's operating at an automatic level. So it's not just about beliefs at all. It's about our propensities, our, you might say, even natural propensities as samsaric survivors. So samsara, right, the world, the wheel of suffering that we're stuck in, that wheel of suffering, the merry-go-round of suffering Is not just driven by our beliefs; it's driven by our behaviors, and we've we've survived so far. Congratulations! Uh, And so, you know, those what it what it takes to survive in samsara is one way to survive is a set of beliefs. You can even say a kind of evolutionary set of propensities as a human and other organisms too that make us good survivors, but also make us miserable. Right? So part of what you can think of Buddhism, especially Mahayana Buddhism, is how do you get out of the misery and like, gain control, if that's the right word. It isn't the right word, but change the merry-go-round, not turn it off. We'll come back to that later. So uh, that means that we need to experience. Wisdom is not just an understanding, it's an experience and to do that, we need a metaphor that's used in a, very, in a text called The Stages of Meditation, written by a very famous Mahayana philosopher, Kamala Shila, in the 8th century, one who went to Tibet. Is It's like you're in a cave. You're in one of these really quite beautiful cave temples or cave monasteries in India, like Ajanta or a Lora. And you go in, but you can't see the amazing cave paintings if you don't have a lamp. And if the lamp is not bright enough, you won't be able to see it. And if it's too, you know, if it's flickering too much, you won't be able to see it. So you need a lamp that is both stable and bright, right? So like maybe it's got some kind of a shade, but it's also got a bright flame. So we can think of Vipassana and Shamatha as providing those two. Shamatha literally means kind of quiescence. Some people translate it as calm abiding. That's from the Tibetan shi name. And it means the capacity to sustain a stable state of mind. A state of mind that is not basically constantly distracted. Where distraction is defined as attention captured. To use a cognitive scientific term. Your attention is captured by something. Involuntarily. So, like a loud sound or whatever. So, that shamatha is what enables us to not be distracted like that all the time. It creates a stable state of mind. And vipassana is what gives us insight to, to see. So that's like the intensity of the flame, right? Where we see and what we're seeing is the nature of reality itself. So we, so we need both of these. And these are said to be like the two wings of a bird, However, one of the things about them is that we can relate these two, two closely related aspects of meditation, actually faults in meditation, which are uh, sinking or dullness and agitation or excitement. Okay? So, I get... If, and one of the issues, especially, really for all meditators, but especially, you know, beginning, intermediate, intermediate and maybe even beyond meditators, is that these two kind of work in opposite to each other. So you can start to develop more and more stability through a shamatha type practice, like focusing on the breath. And the mind becomes more and more stable and more and more quiet. But then it starts to become more and more dull. Right? There's a danger of becoming more and more dull. And Sharon Salzberg, I remember one retreat I did with her. I should say that I've had the pleasure of doing some vipassana retreats in addition to doing some Zen uh, uh, practices. But again, my home base is in the Tibetan Buddhist world, sort of Indo-Tibetan world. Uh, I remember one retreat. She's saying, "Maybe some of you have heard her say it. Talk about the ooze. You ever heard Sharon talk about the ooze? It's like you think you're in a profound meditative state because it's a profound somebody, and it's like you're not asleep, right? You know, and like it's the but you're you're pretty much unconscious." You might as well be, okay, and then so the opposite of that is an extremely like agitated, you know. There's lots of stuff going on, energy rushing, you know, many many thoughts or whatever, right? So that's also not greatly desirable. But in as we will see in this style, Chakzok style of practice, that I'm going to sort of give you some taste of that. Not going to presume to lead you all the way into it, but I will give you hopefully a solid taste of that. The main danger is dullness. It is, if you're going to make a mistake, if you're going to go too far in one direction, go too far in the direction of uh, uh, excitement, of too much energy, of clarity. So another way this is spoken about in the Tibetan word, world is what's called... The, the selcha, and these are very closely related to kind of shamatha, vipassana, the selcha and the necha, the, the abiding or stable aspect of a meditative state and the clarity aspect of the meditative state. And if you get, and again, especially in the early, even probably way advanced practice, these can act in the opposite to each other. So that the more stability you get, the less clarity you have. And the more clarity you get, the less stability you have. But for this style of practice, you need—you really need clarity, right? Stability isn't really going to do it for you. So that even there are styles and forms of this practice in which you deliberately think. You know, like thoughtlessness is not a target. It's a byproduct, but it is not a target actually. Right? So, you know, n- not having thoughts or being in a completely thoughtless like samadhi state is fine, but it could become a trap, actually, from this standpoint of this, pers- this perspective. It's possible for it to become a trap, especially if the goal is to, what in this tradition would be called realize the nature of the mind. And we'll see why that is such a key idea. We're going to kind of lead ourselves conceptually to that point. Why there's all this emphasis about this a whole nature of the mind thing. The sem or sem gyi in Tibetan. So we're going to do a little taste of that now. So part of what, that's, what this means is, by the way, that the emphasis is on what's called tun-tun drang mang. Many sessions short time, okay? Many sessions, short time. Now a session does not have to be uh, like, you could sit on the cushion for 30 minutes and you've done 20 sessions, right? Because you will like do something to adjust, to break, to freshen the mind, right? Right? So it's not, you know, it it doesn't necessarily mean you do a lot of sessions in the day, although that's also good, right? And we will try to drop in periodically ourselves. So let's find a stable position and an alert position. And many of you are already aware of the importance of uh, the meditation position One of the main features of this style of practice that I'm going to invite you to try, especially if you've been used to Vipassana, is meditating with the eyes open. <gasps> uh, and so the way we're going to do that is we're going to allow the eyes, for now, just allow the eyes to sort of gaze downward. All right. The body should be relaxed, but alert. If you want to talk about meditation posture, just come to me and, and say you want further instruction. I think many of you know already. There are various postures. In this tradition, anything is fine, but there's a tendency to use this position where the, where the hands are on the knees. It's interesting to notice the phenomenology, the differences when you put your hands, for example, in the, in the jhana mudra, like this, around the knees. It's kind of interesting to see. But in this style, the hands are on the knees. The eyes open, and the gaze directed downward for now. Just noticing that sense of energy in the spine, alertness, not tense, an openness to the front of the body, energy and stability in the back. And we're going to invite the mind to an object, which here will begin with the breath. But the invitation here is not to focus on the breath in a pinpoint way, or even to focus tightly. So probably easiest is to allow, is to use the abdomen. Yes, the sensations of breathing at the abdomen. Just invite the, the the attention to just settle on the breath. Not trying to figure anything out. Just allowing the mind to, f- to rest on the breath, to ride on the breath. Almost as if you're sort of sitting back, just letting the mind Rest on the sensations of breathing. You will do so naturally. You don't need to make an effort. As thoughts come and go, simply notice them, no need to evaluate, notice thoughts as thoughts, allow the mind to return to the breath. Take a moment now to check your posture. Is your head leaning forward? Is the body tight? Feel free to move, to adjust, to bring energy into the body. Then settle again. Just let the mind settle on the object. You don't need to make it do it. Breath is just an anchor for the attention. You're not meditating on the breath. Nothing to figure out, not looking for anything, just allowing the mind to settle on the breath. And in these last moments, just let go entirely of any notion that you're meditating. Let go of the breath, let go of attention. Nothing to do, nothing not to do. As we go, maybe I'll put these, or maybe uh, Ralph can put these somewhere on the way out where people could. Thank you. So just grab one of those. For, uh, to create a certain kind of container, where I'm going to be doing a recitation in the morning or a certain kind of refuge. And then also bodhisattva, vow, and you are, it'll be on the back side of this, there, or the other side, there's also a set of verses, some of which we'll discuss, maybe all of which we'll discuss, so you can feel free to join me when I do these recitations, or not, or you can do it as a participant observer, like anthropologist, you know, or you can do it because you're, you're, you know, taking refuge, or have taken refuge. Uh, or you can not do it. But it'll be part of the way I will be kind of creating the container because for me, this is like the, it's a Bo- Buddhist enterprise. So it's also academic and even scientific, but it's also Buddhist in this context where I get to wear my Buddhist hat, my fancy pundit, you know, just, can you see it? Right, The fancy pundit hat. Okay. So, and now, and then for now, uh, we'll, uh, Ralph will Make those available for us, and, and as you are spending the rest of the evening, there's a certain kind of openness to this style, which maybe you already got a little taste of, just with the kind of meditation instruction. And I encourage you, so there is a kind of mindfulness, but it's sort of like also a sort of letting go, even, of mindfulness. It's not about, it's not about that kind of attention which also has its purposes. It's a different kind of attention that we'll be exploring. So maybe sustain, if you had a certain sense of openness in that practice, then you you can see if you might sustain some of that as you are moving through the rest of the evening. And yeah, that's it for tonight. So I will also do something very uh, also very traditional, which is I'm going to dedicate our merits. And this is the idea that the positive energy that we've done together is something that we will then, in a sense, kind of put in our storehouse of merit to draw on in the future. Right. And to also remind ourselves of the importance of that, of what our goal is. Evamsavam, and am Kurtwa, Yamai, Sari, Tamshabam, Tenisham Sarva Satvanam, Sarva Dhuka, Prashantikurt. Sanandi, Taji, Zibani, Toni, Neba, Janam, Pajene, Kaganaji, Balla, Jubai, Sibit, Sole, Droa, Droa, So. I'll tell you what that means tomorrow. Yeah. So for tonight, have a good rest, and we'll see you for 7 a.m. meditation before breakfast at 7.30, here.